Now, The Sipping Point with Lori Forster, the wine coach, certified sommelier, corporate entertainer, and wife to a world-class chef, Lori is literally pouring the fun back into wine. Meet some of the most interesting people in the world of food, wine, and spirits as she uncorks the recipe for a delicious life. This is Lori Forster, the wine coach, and I am so thrilled to be here with Robert Parker Jr., who is the world's most influential and famed wine critic, I would say, still. Of course, a Baltimore native. He's a graduate of University of Maryland. It's not Penn State, but I guess it'll do. (laughs) Go Nittany Lions. Anyway, he's been doing... Uh, what he does, which is critiquing some of the greatest and affordable wines around the world, traveling and really ferreting out for wine lovers what he thinks are some of the best examples of wine. His love of wine began in 1967 with a month abroad in France with a beautiful woman who is now his wife for 46, is it 46 years? All right, I love that. Uh, 1978 is when you got the concept that there really wasn't an independent wine publication that consumers could look to to find out information about wine. The Wine Advocate, of course, now everyone knows that it's been called. You, after 37 years, have 50,000 subscribers. It's probably more now all over the world. And you also just recently were one of the few or the very first wine critic to be inducted into the Culinary Institute of America's Vintners Hall of Fame. Robert Parker, thank you so much for coming on The Sipping Point. Uh, We're thrilled to have you. Hey, Lori. Thanks. It's great to see you again. So how amazing was that? Because probably when you started the little newsletter, which is not a little newsletter anymore. Some people probably thought you were crazy. I think I read that people told you to stick to law because that was your first career as a lawyer and attorney. Uh, That that little newsletter, which you had a small following, which is now a large following, would get you into the Hall of Fame at the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America. Was that a surreal moment? It wasn't so much surreal, but I mean, when you start these journeys, and certainly when I started in 1978, I mean, you never know where it's going to go. And you just wanted to basically break even financially and somehow have some fun. And uh, so, I mean, it just, it happens. And then all of a sudden, you get there and they unveil, you know, unveil this bronze plaque of you, you and, and, and you're like, wow, you know, I'm the first wine critic in here. And it's, really, it's the Vintners Hall of Fame, not the Wine Critics or Wine Writers Hall of Fame. So I was really touched by it. Um, and it was important. And I, I think it's just one of those things that so many things have happened in my life I never, ever expected would happen. And they've all been good things. Uh, and so um, it was pretty cool. And I, I hope I'm not... I hope I'm not the last wine critic to get in there. So I've sort of broken, I've broken through the line, you know, so it's just not only vintners and in some, I guess, some historians that are in there. Yeah, broken through the wine glass ceiling, I guess, right? Very good. Well, since we interviewed a few years ago and had a great time and and in that interview talked a lot about how you got started in business, I think it was at that time you just sold uh, interest right. in the company and uh, everybody was predicting that you were going to retire and sitting here I notice you're not retired you're still working so I guess uh, reports of your retirement were greatly exaggerated <laughs> 
what's different for you now since the company structure has changed? I sort of thought you might ask this question because everyone wants to know, like they expect somehow things have changed and things really haven't changed. I mean, the company, and you know, I no longer have a majority interest in the wine advocate, but I have a nice chunk, and I'm in, and obviously I'm interested in the, the ongoing legacy of it, and 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 I can never give it up. I love what I'm doing as long as my mind is intact, and as long as my palate is intact, I'll just keep tasting and writing, and, you know. And uh, so, really, from my perspective, a lot of the the crappy work I did, you know, all the administrative work, you know, and tax returns and, and all these records you had to keep. I no longer do that. Uh, and so I don't do any more editing anymore, you know. And so, so a lot of those things that were sort of the ruling aspect of any job uh, are gone. And so I just get to, you know, I taste what I want. I mean, I'm still, I just gave up Bordeaux this year, which was a hard one to give up, but it was in the plans. I wanted to get a younger guy in it. And we hired a, this guy from England, Neil Martin, uh, I think it was eight or nine years ago. To, to He was to be the replacement for Bordeaux and I thought it was time and so but I'm still doing Northern California I'm still doing verticals of Bordeaux and retrospectives of Bordeaux and I'm doing my value rep- you know, reports from from importers that I really have a lot of confidence in. So, I mean, I'm I'm still actually quite busy. Uh, I mean, my wife thinks, what what is this thing about retirement? You're not retired. So, but I love it. I mean, I really think retirement is a formula for for early death. I mean, I think you really need to keep the mind active. You need to have challenges in life, uh, and so uh, I still have them, and I'm I think I'm all the better for it. Great. Well. Uh- you know, I have a bunch of questions here. I went out on Facebook and I have a, lots of wine lovers that follow me on Facebook and I asked them if you could ask Robert Parker Jr. anything, what would you ask him? So I have a bunch of questions here and I'm really excited about it. So, if, but if folks want to connect with you on social media, I know you're out there. I, I see you on Twitter and you tweet stuff. I tweet it, stuff. Are you comfortable with that? It is actually you tweeting it, it right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it actually is me. I mean, okay. it's, it's, it's Facebook and, and Twitter and I, I got into it reluctantly i have to say you know and i, I think i have around seventy-seven thousand followers on twitter now and and so it gives me a chance to just put some good information out i mean some most of it's wine related but sometimes it's just really good good messages about you know humanity and compassion you know because I, I you know i'm I'm not just a wine you know, tasting robot, as some people have tried to portray me. I mean, you know, I think that, uh, and I enjoy it. I, I enjoy the fact that there is a, you know, that all the the thing about social media is, I mean, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of bad stuff, but most of it's pretty good. And the fact that you can you can convey your thoughts and your feelings and ideas instantaneously and, and make mm-hmm. contact with people that are that hopefully are interested and so uh, I like it. I mean, I have to say I was sort of dragged into it, but yeah. uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it. And it, is it at Robert Parker Jr.? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. And I'm at the wine coach, folks. If you're not tweeting with me, you need to do that too. Okay, stay tuned. We're going to be back with Robert Parker of The Wine Advocate on The Sipping Point. This is Lori Forrester, The Wine Coach. We're back with Robert Parker, world-famous wine critic. Your questions being answered now. All right, so here's some of the questions and some of them later about some of your tweets. But what's something that you think people misunderstand about you because you know once you get i guess the level where you're at uh it's almost like the legend becomes you know that its own personality it, what would you think is something people would don't really understand about you it's not out there well i think because because of the image of uh, well-known wine critics i mean there's this uh, i think this false myth that exists that i'm arrogant uh you know that that you know i'm intolerant of criticism and things like that uh, I think 
people who meet me or often have said that, you know, he's the guy you want to hate until you meet him. And then you really like the guy. Uh, I'm down to earth. I mean, I'm down to earth. I was, you know, I was born in Moncton, Maryland. I live in Moncton, Maryland. Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm a Terrapin from the University of Maryland. I think that that's probably the biggest thing. I mean, is that I look at wine as as an incredibly fascinating beverage, you know, and it, it, it brings joy to your life and, and it, it's fascinating, it's diverse, it's challenging, uh, but have fun with it. And, and I think sometimes people lose in the sort of the the sort of maybe the cold, more analytical prose of criticism, they tend to think, man, man, this must be an, un, you know, just not a happy guy or some guy who's cold, <laughs> sort of cold and calculating and, and, and you know, and, and, and snarky. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not at all. And, and I think that uh, that comes through very, very easily when I, you know, give lectures or people meet me in public. But, but, you know, it is what it is. I mean, I've been doing this a long time and people will, you know, the tendency for everyone, and I do it myself, is you draw black and white conclusions about people just from some image or some mm-hmm. observation, even if you never met them. True. And it's funny what you say about uh, the critic mode. And you know I'm married to a chef. Yeah. And so what of you know, uh, in my comedic wine tasting, I have a few jokes about how painful it is to go out to dinner with him because he just knows too much about the food. He can tell instantly by tasting a piece of fish if it's been frozen before and all kinds of good stuff. Do you find you have a hard time if you go to a dinner party with friends or you're being served just a everyday wine from somebody, can you turn off that critic and just enjoy wine for wine? Or do you find it's hard to, to break out of that shell? I have no problem uh, turning off the critical part because I really want to have a good time when I go out and, and drink and eat. I mean, I really don't want to. And what happens, though, uh, as you can imagine, is when you get invited to somebody's house for dinner and you haven't been there before, you know, they, they'll start saying, well, could you give us your tasting note or, or comments on the wine? And, and basically, I hate that. Yeah. I mean, I'm just there. Just I want to be treated equally with everybody else. And I want, just want to enjoy the wine uh, as much as possible. And I agree completely with what you said. I remember I took a... Uh, a chef who was a chef at the Four Seasons restaurant in D.C. to my favorite bistro in Paris. And I thought the food was great. This guy w- was not happy with anything. He ruined the whole night. <laughs> so I can totally understand. I mean, I think it, that I I learned my lesson maybe 25 years ago at a, at a dinner party with a bunch of doctors where they, the, they, the guy that hosted it asked me to come in on, on, a, on a wine. And, and I told him I, I thought it was fraudulent or it was, it was not, you know, had not been well kept. And, and you know, and a week later, I get like a three-page letter from the guy saying how I embarrassed him in front of his guests and stuff. I said, "See, oh, don't, no don't comment. ask, don't ask. <laughs> just let me taste the wine and just keep my mouth shut." So, uh, so but I can turn that that analytical easily off because you know, at, at the end of the day, I'm a hedonist. Mm, nice. I, I want to enjoy things, and 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 so I I am able to. Oh, that's nice. And uh, you don't have to name names, but you know, are there great? under $20 wines that you love on a daily basis to enjoy with dinner? Or do you find that now that you've tasted these legendary, amazing, expensive wines, it's hard to go back? Well, Laurie, it may come as a shock that I don't every night sit down and drink, you know, a Chateau Lafitte or a Lille of Skies or, or what? Great Burgundy. No, I, I don't. Uh, we tend to have pretty, pretty, our food, you know, we both my wife and I love to cook and our food is generally just simple grilled foods and, you know, pretty basic. And, and so with those, I mean, I tend to drink mostly Mediterranean styled wines, you know, that, that are, you know, from Spain or Southern France or, or Italy. 
And I like that. I mean, I, I'm very happy as long as it's a well-made wine and, and it's, it's flavorful and it's interesting. Uh, it, it, you know, great wines, great wines require a certain respect. You know, and when you're just having dinner at night casually or with friends, uh, it's, it's nice to, I mean, you certainly want a good wine, but you don't want to have the most famous wine in the world because almost everyone feels obligated to say something about it. Right. And that sort of takes away from the whole point of just enjoying company and, and the food and, and the, et cetera. So, um, no, I, I'm not at the point where I will go back and drink uh, uh, bag and you know the, the the box wines and whatever. But but I but the thing is, today is probably the best time ever to be a wine consumer. When I started in 1978, finding inexpensive wines was not easy. I mean, we we found them and we tried them, but it was not the, the quality was not there. Today is a proliferation of quality through throughout the world where you can find great values from Spain, I mean, from southern Italy, from Argentina, Chile. I mean, every, you just name anybody, South Africa, Portugal, whatever. I mean, the list is incredible. And I think consumers, if, if they can drink incredibly well at 15 or $20 a bottle. And just open your eyes and try these wines. And, and I think it's hard for consumers to realize that there's a lot, there are a lot today, there are a lot of 15, 20 hour wines that are every bit as good as the, the 75 or 100 hour wine that's more prestigious and more rarefied but 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 what it has is a historical pedigree and, and, and behind it. When in fact it may not be as good as some of these less expensive ones. Right. And by the way, last weekend I had Bartholomew Broadbent on the show, and he said to say hello. Okay, and he was representing some great. We were talking about Portugal as being a great place to look for value. Uh, this year, my New Year's resolution, because I try to be realistic, was to drink more Spanish wine because I do think there's such great value in regions that are just really coming into prominence that we, people just don't even know about. It's not just Rioja. There's so much there th- that I feel like I'm not even scratching the surface of what's available. No, I tell people, to me, Spain has been this awakening giant. Uh, and, uh, you know, ever since, uh, you know, Franco disappeared, I think the entire wine, the wine culture changed from a sort of a a culture based on large co-ops where all these small farmers had great vineyards and old vines, but they would sell everything off to some co-op and it would get co-mingled with the more crappy stuff, you know, and mm-hmm. so the results were not impressive. And there's been this, this you know, this sort of this wonderful uh, entrepreneurial spirit that has resulted in so many areas. I mean, when I started in 1978, think about this, there were... I, I mean, you couldn't find a wine from Humila, you know, or, or from, I mean, or a, a white Albarino from, from Northwest Spain. I mean, these things just didn't exist, you know, and these are inexpensive, really nice wines. Yeah. And we even um, recently had Manuel La Lozada from Numantia on the show. And, you know, he's got a $20, but he also, also yeah, got some uh, yeah. really amazing wines, uh, more expensive wines. So it's not just affordable. They've got kind of everything. Um, all right. So someone wanted to know, um, how do you develop a taste memory? And I think they're talking about the ability to... Um, one, be specific with what you're smelling, which is a lot of what you're tasting, but also the ability to pinpoint uh, what you're tasting. They're interested in becoming a master sommelier. How do they create this taste memory that will get them through the process? We were chatting before the interview about the documentary Psalm, and people are like right. obsessed with that documentary. Um, to me, I don't know. I, I'm not that I've done uh, my intro testing, but it's almost like you have to become obsessed and just that's all you do. Is there another way of doing it besides flashcards and uh, obsession? <laughs> well, if, you, if you're going to really 
go to that level. And that's a pretty advanced level where you're trying to isolate smells, and, you know, and think about the textures and the flavors that you're really encountering. Uh, that takes some work. I mean, I mean, I mean, bottom line for most consumers is, do you like it? Uh, how much do you like it? Would you buy it again? And, 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 and if you get beyond that, it's, it gets pretty serious. And, and um, certainly I was born in a farming family. I mean, my, my, the flavors that I identify with were vanilla, chocolate, Coca-Cola, milk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, uh, you know, meals cooked forever because that was what my mother made. I mean, you know, stuff that was cooked for a long time. Um, when I went to, when I got interested in wine, and I came back and formed a wine tasting group in 1968 at the University of Maryland. And then when I went on to law school two years later, uh, I remember thinking, how do, how can I discipline my, my my nose and my mind to, to isolate smells. And what I did, and I did it for, for a long time, but it worked, is that when I, anything I did, walking on the streets of, of downtown Baltimore, I often went to Lexington Market for lunch when I was in law school, I would isolate smells. Like, okay, on, on a warm day, you, the, the melting tar in the road is a smell you often will get in wines. Right. Uh, garbagey smells. You know, I mean, you know what? What is that smell? It's something rotting. But what is it? Can you identify? Lexington Market was a great place. <laughs> right. I mean, from the smell of, of fried chicken, you know, to to the, the fresh flowers, to vegetables, things like that. And I always tried, you know, like watermelon or things like that. I mean, just, just to isolate these smells in my mind. And I thought that would help me, make me a more disciplined taster. Um, but at the same time, it, this requires a sort of an obsession, and that's not really for everybody. I mean, I went on to make a career out of it, but I, but for most people, it's really Find me a good wine, and do I really need to know whether it's black cherries, black currants, blackberry, uh, or no? You really don't. Uh, and if you can tell, if you can just get to the point where you can tell the difference between red fruits, black fruits, blue fruits, you've come a long way. Right. <laughs> and 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 the most important thing is do it, which one do I like the best? Mm-hmm. All right. So yeah, trust your own taste. Exactly. I definitely am all about that. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we've got more great stuff with Robert Parker of The Wine Advocate on The Sipping Point. This is Lori Forster, The Wine Coach. This is The Sipping Point. We're talking all things wine with Robert Parker, Baltimore's own world-famous wine critic, just inducted into the Hall of Fame at the Culinary Institute of America. So if you're looking to really get into wine to learn more someone asked what books do you recommend besides just the basic grape varietal uh terroir stuff which isn't that basic really (laughs) that's what this person's saying but are there some go-to books that you would point people to read well, I think there's a number that you, if you're going to learn anything about wine, you've basically got to read these books at least once. Uh, I think Kevin Zarelli's, you know, uh, basic wine book is is still one of the great bestsellers for a reason. It's that good, mm-hmm. you know, and he's updated it uh, periodically. I think uh, Karen McNeil's Wine Bible is another mm-hmm. terrific book. Uh, it's a little bit more advanced. I mean, but it, but it, but you you can learn an amazing amount from that. Um, a book that I it's probably hard to find now, but it was one of the one of my classics when I was learning was Stephen Spurrier's Academy de Vin Wine Course. Mm-hmm. He taught a wine course in Paris, right? Uh, and he based a book around it uh, called the Academy de Vin Wine Course, and it was a terrific book. and And I think it probably never got a whole lot of exposure in the United States. But I think if you go to like the Wine Appreciation Guild or some of these places that have uh, uh, libraries of these older books, you can probably find one for sale or eBay or whatever. Yeah. But uh, those would be the three off the top of my head. I, uh, uh, and uh, we we have a book, The Wine Advocate is Publishing, by our editor-in-chief, uh, Lisa Parati-Brown, who's a master of wine. She has a book, 
just coming out, and I wish I had one to show you, but we're, we just just being shipped on on how how to taste wine like a professional wine mm-hmm. professional. And when she told me she was doing this, I, mean, I had nothing to do with the book, and and uh, she's I, I just thought, well, all that's been worked and reworked and worked in the in the classics I just mentioned to you, you know, Karen McNeil's and Kevin's and Stephen Spurrier's books, but. Uh, but I'm telling you, she she's nailed it. I mean, and so I think some of your readers would love to take a look at that book when it, when it, I think it should be available in another couple of weeks because uh, she's really done a great job. And she was a she's a master of wine, you know. And and when she took the exams, she not only a master of wine, she was number one in her class of of of, of applicants. Yes. And she's American, so that's not that's not easy to do. And I've done some training with the Court of Master Sommeliers, and I've also done my advanced level with the WSET, which eventually uh, awards the Master of Wine. And the Master of Wine is very academic. There's a lot more to it, whereas the, the, the Court of Masters is a little more service-oriented and, and restaurant-focused. MW, I mean, you're memorizing all the different kinds of diseases that affect the vine and uh, the formulas for, for all kinds of different things that are part of the process of making wine. So it's no small feet it's tasting plus 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 yeah, well, so as you know if you pull that kind of knowledge out when you're serving somebody at a restaurant they're going to fall asleep true. at the table <laughs> and they'll be running out the door that's so. true it's a, it's a hazing process in the <laughs> wine industry so you so here's a great one and i'm a big fan of oregon pinot noir uh but somebody wanted to know what are your thoughts on oregon pinot versus french burgundy and what do you think are the main differences other than the place but more the style yeah. of the wine i mean that's a great question. I should give you a disclaimer that that you probably know that I have an interest in you know in a winery in Oregon with my brother-in-law. I don't write about it or talk about, about it. That, I'm not yeah. going to mention the name either here. Yeah. But but so I, I I mean I have a I guess an intimate idea of what's going on out there, and we we've, we've been making wine there since 1990. So I mean we have almost 25 vintages. Uh, there's a lot of similarities between Burgundy and Oregon. I mean, first of all, I think you have these sort of this fierce independence of the of the of the producers. You know, they're small, uh, they're farmers by and large. Uh, the people that that make the wine are the ones that you know they work in the vineyard. Uh, most people don't have PR experts out there. They're both cool climate uh, areas. Both have challenges in the fall in Oregon it's the it's the low low depressions that descend from Alaska that come down and sometimes wreck a vintage with too much rain uh, Burgundy has the same problem with the fronts moving in off the Atlantic and, and uh, dropping too much rain at the most critical time but but when you don't have sort of a nightmare vintage I, I, and you only have one maybe two or three times a decade the other six or seven vintages can be quite fascinating and uh, you know the, the to me the difference is uh, Oregon wines tend to have this, about the same same alcohol level as Burgundy's. They all run about you know thirteen to fourteen, fourteen two, which would be the highest in the ripest years. Uh, I think Burgundy's tend to be slightly crisper and higher in acidity uh, than Oregon Pinot Noir, uh, but. Oregon Pinot Noir compared to California Pinot Noir tends to be higher in acidity than California Pinot Noir, which is riper and fuller and generally more alcoholic. Um, I do think. Burgundy, because the soils there, the great vineyards are all planted on limestone. Oregon has no limestone. You know, it's it's uh, it, you know it's this Will Kenzie loamy soil sand you know sandstone uh, decomposed sandstone stuff. So I, I think you don't get the minerality in, in Oregon Pinot Noirs that you get in in, in red Burgundy. Uh, size wise, I think and age age worthiness, I think both Oregon Pinot Noirs can last a long time. I mean, I think we've 
you're starting to see them with ours, uh, which are not blockbuster wines by any means, because you can't make a massive wine in Oregon for the most part. Uh, and uh, uh, that they, they age quite well. I, I'm not sure they age as well as a great Grand Cru from Burgundy, but, but they certainly can last and evolve for 10 or 15 years if people are looking for that. But as you know, most people today are buying <laughs> wine to drink within 30 minutes of purchase. <laughs> like Domino's, 30 minutes or less. I love it. Well, I'm a big fan. And uh, although sometimes I think, oh, you know, it's $30 really for a starter Oregon Pinot, which for a lot of people, you know, is beyond what they might spend for a Tuesday night. If you look at relative price value next to Burgundy, you know, and you can age it, you're getting a little bit more for your money, I guess. I I think this, I see, I've seen such a proliferation of new vineyards in Oregon. I think it's going to be, I think because Oregon is getting a lot of press, a lot of favorable press in the travel magazines, Oregon, you know, Portland is a great hipster city you know it's a cool place i mean it's really just a wonderful one and it's being discovered i think we're seeing we're going to see in the next five or six years an overproduction of oregon pinot noir and what that means for the consumer less money less money and they're going to be wineries that are going to offer 15 to 20 dollar pinot noirs that are pretty good stuff uh, I really think that's going to ha- it has to happen because the high prices. I mean, the fifty, the thirty to fifty dollars or more uh, Pinot Noirs. That's a limited market, right. and and when you only had let's say fifty wineries doing it, uh, you pretty much could sell it all. Right. But when you have four hundred wineries doing it, as you do now, it's right. it's a lot more difficult, uh, and uh, the demographics change completely. We're going to take a quick break on the sipping point. We'll be right back. This is Lori Forrester, the wine coach. You're listening to The Sipping Point. We're back with Robert Parker to finish up what I think is an amazing interview. Here's your next question. You talked about killer vintages, you know, some of that cold air uh, affecting the vintages in Oregon. Somebody is very, and myself, uh, lots of people out there, California has this major drought. Now there's all these water restrictions going on all over the state. Um, What are your thoughts on, and when I was in Sonoma in the fall, the winemakers were saying that this was going to be a good thing for the wine, the drought. I don't know if that's just uh, optimistic thinking or rose-colored glasses. What do you think the drought in California is going to mean from a wine perspective? Do you have any thoughts well, keep in mind that, that the the original uh, wave of immigrants that planted vines in California uh, were all dry farm vineyards. There was no drip irrigation that was available in the 1800s or even bef- up until before Prohibition. And even post-Prohibition, most of the, the vineyards that were, some of the famous old vineyards that were planted in the in the 1800s, like Monterosa and Sonoma, were, were dry farmed. And drip irrigation came in because it was easier and you could, you know, as, a, as a farmer, if you could afford it, you could easily control, you know, the growth of the vine and the vegetation. The, the, the vegetative process the drought is scary i just came back from california and and northern california is less affected because they they had more rain but but when you get south of san francisco and for the first time ever actually i should tell your readers one of the greatest drives you could ever make in the world is big sur yeah the the coastal highway that is just absolutely breathtaking but as soon as you get south of san francisco i mean things are drying up and the you see the reservoirs there. I mean, you're you're seeing islands in the middle of, of these reservoirs that I've never seen before. Mm-hmm. So it's I think it's scary. I think ultimately the, they're going to have to curtail the the, the consumption of water. Um, there's really the only the only solution is I mean, change in the climate. Uh, certainly these 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 fantasy ideas of building some conduit from Oregon and. And, and, and pushing the water down to to the uh, Los Angeles area, I, I just think are, are pipe dreams, literally. Um, but uh, 
I, I think I think farmers are going to have to cut back, and I think the I think they're going to be surprised that the root systems will probably will it depends on the soil types and everything will probably survive, and it will push the root systems deeper and deeper in search of moisture uh, to survive. Uh, and they'll probably find that, that that the water, the drip irrigation systems, were probably like a like a convenient antibiotic or drug that they really didn't need after all. Now there's going to be exceptions to that, uh, and I think one of the things about lack of water in California when it gets pretty hot is it, it helps manage the tannins that develop in the grape skins. And so by controlling the water, you get softer tannins. If you had no water. The grapes might shrivel up and get more raisiny, and then the tannins would be more stringent and bitter, and we wouldn't like the wines as much. Right. Uh, but it's a definitely a, it's, it's scary. I mean, I, I have to say Northern California looked pretty good to me. The reservoirs look pretty good. But once you get south of San Francisco, it's, it's almost like two different states wow. in terms of the climate. Well, uh, this question comes from me, actually, because uh, a couple months ago I was interviewing uh, Hugh Sisson for the show. I I think you know Hugh from Heavy Seas. And um, I noticed on your Twitter that you had been tweeting about a couple of beers, um, craft beers. I call them microbrews. I guess I'm aging myself because that term isn't really used anymore. But uh, there's so much going on in the craft brew scene and even I was in New York a few weeks ago. The Wine Market Council releases studies every year about wine drinkers and what people. And, uh, you know, I think the wine industry is kind of nervous that they lose some market share of, of connoisseurs who are getting into craft beers now, too. And there's so many options. So are you uh, going to start tasting craft beers like you're tasting wine or is this just a, a fun little hobby? Tell me about uh, some of your uh, tweets about beer. Well, it, it's funny that you picked up on that because, uh, uh, I, you know, I've got, I've got, uh, you know, it's, you can teach an old dog new tricks. And I, and I think, I think I was sort of fascinated because some of my friends said, you got to taste some of these beers that are, they're being these, the, these really, these small production beers that have basically drink by drinking like the next three weeks or whatever. And they're, they're bottled, unfined, unfiltered. And, and I was just blown away by the quality of them. And the thing is, I was saying, I can see why the wine industry is nervous about them because, you know, you can go out and buy a four pack of really handcrafted, tremendously interesting complex delicious beer you know for 15 or 20 dollars for a four, four pack when when that just gets you into sort of the, the introductory wine level uh so i can see and i think it is taking away from the wine market to a certain extent but i have to say let's aside from that argument i think it's great i just think it's wonderful and i was uh you know i was at a wine shop actually in in baltimore right before i went to california and they brought down all these they had to go up and wait in line in vermont for, for uh, I think it's called Hilltop Farm. For these these beers sell out. People sleep overnight in sleeping bags to get their allocation. And and this guy did that. And he brought them back. He said, "I want you to taste them." And we're tasting these just brilliant beers. You know, I, most of them are IPAs. I, the stout's too heavy for me. But I mean, the, I just thought the wine industry has a challenge here because they're they're much less expensive. The quality goes up and up and up. And of course, the investment in making a, a quality beer is much smaller than planting a vineyard, waiting three years for, for the vineyard to mature, and then you've got to have barrels or at least tanks you know, to make the wine. So, so the investment is much smaller, and you have a young generation that's really taking to it. Yeah. So I hate to say it that, it, that, <laughs> that, that, that the, my, uh, my nephew in Oregon, whose father runs our winery out there and makes wine, he plants hops on our vineyard because he's making craft beer. So I mean, and, and Oregon hops There's have a, a big, 
beer scene out there. Yeah, yeah. Oregon hops, and he can. T- he always tells me, "Listen, our hops out in Oregon are so much better than what you get back east." And I said, "Well, I'm not going to get into that argument because <laughs> I don't really know." But but I think it's fascinating, and I think it's uh, it's not going to go away. It's mm-hmm. the same thing as we see with with spirits with right. the with the bourbon craze. Yes. I mean, you see that Pappy Van Winkle oh, uh, goes up to three thousand dollars a bottle, and no one can get it. Uh, and it is crazy. Um, but we're seeing again. That's a uniquely American product. Uh, and it, it's a fascinating product. Mm. And it's what I w- also was fascinating in New York. Uh, a gentleman from Nielsen got up. They also collect data on alcohol consumption. And generationally, you know, everybody's about the millennials, right? I'm, I'm a Gen Xer. Nobody cares about us. There's only 35 million of us. But yeah. the millennials are the same size magnitude-wise as the baby boomer generation. So, of course, can, you know, a lot of manufacturers want to capture that market. So if you look at millennials... Uh, even though women have always slanted a little bit more towards wine consumption, right. with millennials, it's it's even more exaggerated women uh, towards wine and males wow, towards the craft beer that. market. Yeah. yeah. So it's uh, it's going to be a challenge for the wineries. I mean, certainly they seem to have, have the female market in that generation, but most of the guys are really getting into this beer, the craft beer craze, and there's you know, we have uh, local ones here that make, you know, basil white beer. I mean, there's all kinds of cool things going yeah, on. I mean, I think we, uh, I mean, I'm sure Hugh, I mean, could tell you, I mean, obviously uh, Dogfish, you right. know, uh, in, in, in Delaware, it story. was one of the first great success stories of a, of a sort of a small scale brewery. Uh, I don't know how big they are now, but I mean, their stuff still sells out. Right. And, uh, and, uh, and some of Hugh's wines, the, uh, wines, beers, I mean, yeah. the Freudian slip there. <laughs> they're so delicious, they're almost a wine. But, but he knows a lot about wine, yeah, too. Yeah. yeah. So, no, but I think it's, it's, that, that trend is a legitimate trend that's here to stay. Uh, and it's interesting, though, the dynamics between women and men uh, in the yeah. millennials. So, uh, I mean, I can't really comment on that because I'm a long way from a millennial. <laughs> uh, me, too. Me, too. All right. So, uh, thank you so much for all this time. One more question. Sure. And uh, I always joke with people, and I'm sure you get this question a lot because you're also in the wine business. What is, uh, people ask me, what's my favorite wine? Which is always a difficult question to answer because I love so many different things. But I always joke that my death row wine, you know, if I was on death row and I could only have one more wine, is the Aldo Conterno Gran Busia 99 Barolo. It's one of my, yeah, one of my amazing wines I I had first in Italy and I've been able to find it since. So if you could give me one wine to try and the world was ending tomorrow, what what wine would you suggest is is the, I don't know if I'm going to get you in trouble answering this question. No, no, no. I mean, I I mean, I can answer it. I mean, obviously there are hundreds, if not probably close to a thousand I could probably recommend if I thought about it long enough but the, the key start saving up. but here's the key the key is don't be on your deathbed and 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 realize that you didn't drink it so I think it would probably be uh Gigal Cote Roti uh their their most famous one and the one I think is the most interesting and and uh compelling is their La Moulin and I would say if you could get the 1978 or 1985 uh that would be that would be a wine that would uh you know, if I had one last wine, right. that would be it. All right. I'm going to take a look for it. <laughs> well, um, Robert Parker, Jr., um, founder of The Wine Advocate, we so appreciate your time here on The Sipping Point and answering all of our listeners' questions. I appreciate it, and uh, I hope you'll join us again. Hey, thank, thanks a lot. I appreciate the, the time to, sh- to share my views with your readers, and, and thanks for what you do. I mean, oh, it's a great show. All right. Cheers. Thanks. 
This is Lori Forrester with The Sipping Point. What an amazing show. Thank you so much to Robert Parker for the generous amount of time he gave us to answer all your wine questions. But I also want to thank all our sponsors, Sheehy Lexus of Annapolis, The Oregon Grill, Wine World, and Hair of the Dog Wine and Spirits.